because I was just sending them out to anybody on LinkedIn, I got banned from LinkedIn. I got struck down. You know, they, the, link, the LinkedIn police said, you are no longer allowed to be on LinkedIn. It was like, oh my God. I know, I had to like beg for my access back. But, but it turned out that a couple of those connections turned into real opportunities yeah. that closed and ended up saving my sales career. Hi, I'm Jubin, go-to-market partner at Kleiner Perkins, and this is GTMG show that interviews world-class revenue and go-to-market leaders to explore how they operate, think, and deploy grit every day in order to build incredible companies. Speaking of world-class companies, there are more incredible startups in the Kleiner portfolio than I've ever seen. When I was operating, I would have begged to be in some of these companies. If you're listening, and we don't do sponsorships on this show, so I figured I'd use this opportunity. If you're listening and you are inspired by the stories of my guests and you want to find the next incredible ride for you, reach out to me. Let's find an amazing job in the Kleiner portfolio. Now let's get to the episode. Brian, welcome to the show. Thanks, man. I get all these things started the same way. I read my guest backgrounds back to them. All right. Your advisory section is half of my page in front of me. So I will go through the background and then I will make it through the advisory section. And then I will just sit here and squirm. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, it's better me do it than you because you'd skip over a bunch of stuff out of some sense of humility. And then we wouldn't be able to get the dramatic start that I'd be looking for. So I'll go ahead and do it. And we can use that as a launching point. Fire away. UC San Diego, you got your BA in poli-sci. Then I think you studied abroad in France. I don't know, maybe I made that up. And then you went to Santa Clara, got your law degree. Then you became an attorney, spent a year doing that, became a general counsel at AMD. Then you went to Ariba as the general counsel. You spent almost 10 years at Ariba, eventually becoming kind of the CFO of North America type stuff. Realized that maybe the legal career is, is not the one for you ended up at, at the time, a pretty small, less than 100 million revenue company called LinkedIn. And I'm looking at you to give me affirmation. I'm not totally screwing this thing up. 75 million and 15 people in sales when I started. Wow, it's pretty good revenue for that many people. All ad business. That's pretty good. And you spent 10 years at LinkedIn, first as the director of sales ops, then the head of global sales ops. Then your last five years, you were the VP of global sales ops. Starting in 2016, when everyone realized that you're good at working, you started getting a bunch of advisory positions, which I want to ask you how the hell you have so many, but DocuSign, really Blue Jeans, Flexport, Procore, Principles, Ray Dalio's company, and Back to Work app and M-Train, three or four of which you're, I think, actively advising today. And as of September of 2020, which was, how long ago was that? One year. Literally a year ago. I mean, today's September, yeah. Holy hell. September something, 8th, 9th. Holy hell. Yeah, so I guess as of a year ago, you have become the COO of Cameo. What did I screw up? I don't think you screwed anything out. Well, I, the only like true error in your statement was that I was never, never the general counsel. The mm -hmm. general counsel is like the main lawyer in these places. You know, I started my career, I wanted to be an environmental lawyer. Mm -hmm. I dreamed about saving the trees. That was like my focus from a very young age until... I actually completed law school. And once I actually had had that job, became an environmental lawyer, I realized it was super boring and that I wasn't as passionate about it as I thought it was gonna be about it. And I was living in Silicon Valley, newly married. Technology was exploding all around me and I decided to leave and go take go from the firm to actually work in-house uh -huh. as a corporate attorney, basically. Uh -huh. 
And then I left AMD. I went to this Ariba company. I think you alluded. Ariba was the, you know, the darling of the dot-com bubble. Yeah, they were pretty cool. You remember them? I do, yeah. Exactly. And I, I had a great mentor there. I started as a lawyer helping and closing deals for sales guys. That was like really what I was good at and what I enjoyed doing. And this mentor who was the CFO of Ariba pulled me aside one day and said, I think you're wasted in law. You should come work in finance, which was like a big, huge shift for me to even think about like leaving law and going into finance. Mm -hmm. But I did for a variety of reasons, most of which was because I believed in this guy. And then a couple of years later, he convinced me to leave finance and go into sales and carry my first bag. That was like my real first sales job. It was 2006, seven, somewhere around there. And I was basically selling contract management solutions, which today is a pretty big business. I mean, there's lots of, in fact, one of the companies I advise, Parley Pro, is in the contract management solutions business. And I realized that I love sales and it was kind of like the thing that fit me the best. Love at first sight. So you said closing deals for sales guys. Is what you mean by that? In the lawyer world, we're getting down to brass tacks, like MSAs are getting redlined and you are coming in and getting into a pissing contest with the other legal team. Yeah, I mean, that's what it probably appears like to the sales guys sitting in the room, yeah, like the just like cringe. Stupid you've been looking at, yeah, exactly. I've been in so many different sides of these negotiations at this point, I feel like it's like my home. Yeah. So <laughs> I've been on the buying side because I've done tons of procurement work. I've been on the selling side, obviously. I've been in the legal seat, I've been in the finance seat, I've been in the salesperson seat. So it's really interesting. And yes, the mating dance of the lawyers is like a ridiculous pe peacock <laughs> dance where people have to basically like negotiate and prove their value. But a great lawyer understands that it's not just about them, that it's about getting the deal done and that they're able to run and manipulate the process in order to actually close the deal and get past the other lawyer on the side and get past the legal risk issues and actually get the best business terms and the best overall structured contract for the company. And so I liked to basically fly me out to Japan or Germany or New Jersey. And I wanna sit down in the room with everyone and I wanna get the contract done right there on the spot. In and person. Not gonna, in person. Oh, the sales team must've loved you. Sales team loved me. <laughs> sales team loved me. And that was like why I was good at doing it. I was capable of negotiating and drafting and doing everything on the fly. What's the George Clooney movie where he flies around and fires people in person? His whole job is to fire people in person. Sounds like a terrible job, but my job was to fly around and like- <laughs> And get it done. And get it done, close the revenue, like walk out with a contract at the end of the day. That's so cool. When I say close deals, I thought of myself like the sales, yeah, yeah, part yeah. of the sales team. Didn't make the commission back yeah. then. Now I understand it. I'm much more comfortable though now sitting in the seat and letting a lawyer, a lawyer negotiate. Do, do the job for you. And I'll just sit back and smile. <laughs> <laughs> what was your first ever job? First ever job, first ever like real job. I worked at the boardwalk in Santa Cruz yeah. as a fry cook. Okay. Yeah. So I grew up in the South Bay. We were just talking about this. And I used to go when I was a kid to the boardwalk and there was a freaking spinny ride. And I would go with the same friends and they always went on the spinny ride. And I tell them our day is over as soon as Jubin goes on the spinny ride, because he's going to start throwing up. So we can either not go on it and let Jubin enjoy his day, or we wait till the end, in which case I'm gonna hold us up. We're not gonna be able to leave because I'm gonna be throwing up. 
So anyway, I have fond memories of the boardwalk, but I also have uh, a little bit of scarring, I guess. I know that ride. It was not far from where I was cooking up burgers and pizza and tacos, so. All right, right before this, we were also talking about, you gotta tell the story again, the college job. You went to UCSD, what were you doing? What was your job during school? I've had jobs my entire life. At the boardwalk, I think my first job is like 13 years old, flipping burgers, but the college jobs, I started as a, company making skateboards. And I was like building skateboards. And then I was a lifeguard and tennis instructor, even though I can't play tennis. But the job that I ended up sticking out through most of my college career was I serviced candy machines at restaurants. So, you know, like the little machines that you put a quarter in for jelly beans for Easter seals or, or something. I was the guy who would go to the machine, take out the money, fill it back up with jelly beans or whatever the candy was in that particular thing. I ran the San Diego route. So I would drive all over San Diego. I've been to like the far reaches of La Mesa and Poway and Vista and, you know, Chula Vista. Refilling the gumball machines. Refilling jelly beans, getting cash, and then dropping off my route, which is a good job for a college student because you can service it whenever you want. It's like, you know, you just have to hit them up like once a week or something. As long as they're open, just drive up and just great, do it. Great job. I worked at the Alumni Association through college and I was like a, BD guy would be putting it way too generously. I was something on the business side, learning how to do anything related to anything customer facing. And one of the things, it was right around the time when you joined LinkedIn. And I was like, this LinkedIn thing is really cool. And I was involved in the career fairs. And I said, we shouldn't have a booth at the career fair, like the alumni association. We should only take headshots for people that come in for this thing called LinkedIn. And so I thought that was a really cool job. This whole time I'm working at the Alumni Association, I'm meeting great alumni, I'm like learning how to be a professional human in front of people. And then we did some event on campus and they dressed me as the mascot. They said, Jubin, you won't care. So- Wait, where did you go to school? Davis, you see okay. Davis? You were like a Annie? An Aggie. Aggie. An Aggie. An Aggie, yeah. So I was in a big cow costume in the middle of summer walking around a parade. And that's when I realized that maybe I don't have the best college job. Anyway, on the advisory stuff, this caught my eye. Like a lot of folks in my world, people that I meet with, guests of the show, wanna be involved in startups, KP portfolio companies. I want them involved. These are amazing, amazing people. This is a lot of advisory roles. What's the secret here? <laughs> They're all from all over the place, right? So some of them are came inbound, hmm. right? And so people reached out to me and said, mm -hmm. hey, or through introductions, through, through mutual acquaintances. Other of them, I actually reached out myself and actually sold my way into that advisory position. So a good example is the advisory role I have at Really. I don't know if you know Really, but this is a company I love. They do really creative real estate and construction services. They're kind of like an integrated home manufacturer. Huh. Super cool company. When you go outbound, hey, I'm Brian Frank. I run a big sales operations organization at LinkedIn, and I bet you don't really know, and probably you're doing this much more eloquently than I'm saying it, but- What's my pitch? Yeah, what's your pitch? I have operational rigor that I can come teach you from scaling a business. Well, it's a good question. So I would say I approach all of my outbound opportunities, regardless whether it's for me as an advisor or for my business or for a company I'm representing in sales, in, with the same approach is the, the first approach is understand research, right? Really get some good sense of what this company is, who the individuals are, what are they all about? The second is 
try to understand where there's a common connection there. It's much, much easier to like have an introduction through a mutual friend than it is for me to go out cold to somebody. And this was something that I think LinkedIn really opened up the door for everyone. We all realized that we're connected in some way and it's, it's possible to actually have a mutual friend or mutual connection introduce you to somebody else. And then the third level is just real customization that actually you think resonates with the person that really, so it really is this company that does fixed fee real estate services. And basically instead of paying someone 3%, you pay them a flat 10,000 bucks and then they rebate you the difference mm-hmm. in cash. It's a little confusing for most people, but like I had actually started a business like that as a side hustle way back in 2008. And I stopped doing it because I was just too busy to be involved in that world when I started my LinkedIn job. And I was also running a real estate investment firm on Mm. on the side. Mm -hmm. And so when I reached out to the CEO at Really, I said, hey, Amit, I was watching TV and a commercial came on and I looked at my wife and I said, that's my idea. That's what the idea I had had. And like, I'm an executive at LinkedIn. I help companies scale their go-to-market processes and I'm an attorney and I'm a real estate broker. And I would love to basically talk to you, figure out how I can invest or be an advisor. And so proud to say I'm both. He said, he was cool. He said, yeah, let's meet. And that's awesome. And we've been friends for the last four years. Maybe this is coincidence. I suspect it's not. You, Dan Shapiro, former guest of the show, and Mike Gamson all started companies when you were younger. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, we've all had some level of entrepreneurship. Those two are some of my closest friends in the world. So we are the three amigos from back in the day. Yeah. And I have more respect for those two humans than probably most people on the planet. I mean, it's exceptional. So thank you for putting me in the class of them. (laughs) Yes, but I think all of us have entrepreneurial spirits, right? I mean, you know, Mike had his burrito shop in Costa Rica. That's right. And and Dan had his sports business. uh, I was far less successful. My most successful side hustle was my real estate investment firm. That was my big win, but yeah. And I promise I'm gonna get into some of the meat here, but I can't help myself. I've had a lot of LinkedIn people that have worked very closely with you on the show. Did you know that? I don't know if you knew this, but anyone from Dan Shapiro has been on the show to Peter Kim, to Ryan Longfield, to LB Harvey. Hired them both. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm missing some too. You know, Mike Gamson, is coming on the show in a couple of weeks. And we're gonna talk about the transition from CRO to CEO. So quite a few, okay, quite a few. So the way that that's manifested now is that I get to know a lot about everybody at LinkedIn before they, they walk into the room and you were no exception to that rule. And so I talked to all of them about, basically if you could ask you one question, what would it be? And I'm not going to go into all of them. I want to start on the personal side and dealer's choice. You tell me which one of these you want to explain. Okay. So I've gotten, he loves t-shirt guns and you can probably know who these are from. He loves kiteboarding. Ryan asked about beatboxing and, <laughs> and then about becoming a guitarist late in life and how you met your instructor. Okay, I'll go with the last one. That sounds like a good story. Yeah, I actually wrote a LinkedIn post in this one too. So I don't want to hear the big story, but I'm the kind of person who loves to learn things. So I'm like constantly learning. So kiteboarding is something I just picked up in the last five years and guitar is like something I never played, never been a musician, but I I wanted to always be one, just never had the time or the Mm -hmm. willingness to really work at it. 
And I had bought my son a guitar for lessons. And of course he never used it. It was just sitting on the side of the, my desk one day. And I was just in between meetings and I picked it up and just was holding it. And I searched up guitar lessons and I found this guitar lesson for like how to play Wonderwall in five minutes. Mm -hmm. And I watched it and I just kind of like followed the instructions on the thing. And it was amazing. It's like, this is something I kind of did. It took me probably three or four months of five to 10 minutes every other day. And at the end, I could actually play Wonderwall on this guitar. And so I was so inspired by it that I looked up the guy, his name is Marty Schwartz. The singer of- No, he's not the singer. Oh, oh, the guy that taught you how to play it in five minutes. The guy taught me the, the video, the, right, right. the YouTube yeah, yeah. video. Okay, yeah. And it turns out that he has like a website and he was like selling CDs to uh -huh. teach things. And I didn't need a CD, I just watched this YouTube video. So I, I found him on LinkedIn. He had like a profile with like two connections. I sent him a message on LinkedIn and he responded. I said, hey, I said, I don't wanna buy CDs, but I wanna send you some money because I really appreciate the fact that I learned how to play guitar from you. And he responded immediately saying, thanks, awesome. Here's my PayPal account. And I sent him a hundred dollars. And he responded saying, thank you so much. And I see you work at LinkedIn and I'd love to learn how to make my profile better and how to use this for business. And so I met him on one of my business trips. I was in Los Angeles and I helped him set up his LinkedIn account. And we sent out a bunch of messages to get sponsorship deals at different Taylor guitar. And they all responded and he got like all these deals. Come on. Swear to God, out of this <laughs> engagement. And so we've become great friends over this what? time. In fact, once I got my job here at Cameo, which is in his neck of the woods, he was the first person I called to sign up. Come on. Yeah, and he's done really well on Cameo you too, You signed him up to Cameo. He's my first talent I've signed up to Cameo. No way. Yeah, Marty Schwartz oh is on Cameo. Book him right now. If you like guitar, you should definitely check out Marty Schwartz. He's the number one guitar instructor on YouTube. I don't believe in coincidences. What a great story. <laughs> Can we go back to the, like, the learning thing? I wanna ask you two questions. One is how do you learn? But I wanna be pretty specific. Do you have favorite mediums with which you learn from? And does it differ depending on what you're learning? I'll leave it at that. Yes, for sure. If you were to go kiteboarding, are you gonna read a book or watch YouTube videos? Or are you gonna jump in the water and figure it out? Or are you gonna call a friend that you know knows how to kiteboard and understand that? And then before you even do any of that and you're trying to understand about that curiosity. How do you go about scratching at what is making you curious and learning more about yourself through that process? I'm definitely an experiential learner. I do not wanna read a book about it. I do not wanna watch a class. The moment you've put me in a class, like watching videos, I'm tuning out really quick. I will go back and watch content once I feel like I need to understand it better, but I do not want to learn just sit in the room and, and get that way. I like to experience what I'm doing. So with the guitar, start playing now. And I don't wanna do scales and I don't wanna learn chords. I wanna just learn where do I put my fingers and how do I strum? And that's like how I start. Same thing with kiteboarding. Get me in the water and let's just try to do it and try to figure it out and give me coaching as I get better. I will say that's different from other types of learning like classroom learning. Mm -hmm. When I took the broker's exam to be a real estate broker in California, that's not the kind of thing you can experience from that perspective. You had to like take a test. Mm -hmm. And so when I take a test, the way I prepare to take tests is I take other practice tests. That's just what I do. I won't even study the material. I'll literally just walk right into the test and start taking it cold and see how I do. Do I know some of this information already? Do I not know any of it? Do you know like that? And then 
I'll study the stuff that I don't know. You'll use that as a guiding light to figure out where are the gaps in my game and then go specifically study those things. Yeah, and I think that's probably the approach that I would take with most things, which is go in, launch, learn, and then come back and iterate and see how you can improve over time. Did you get your LinkedIn deactivated at some point? Does that? Yeah, yeah, that's that our stories on can there. You, can you tell me that? Can you tell me that? Oh, I have Paige, we're not gonna get to all the stories. Oh man, yeah, so yeah, that's my LinkedIn story actually. So when I went into sales and was carrying a bag selling those contract management solutions, right? I started making cold calls every Pre-LinkedIn. Day. This is pre-LinkedIn. Pre you this working is, at LinkedIn. This is, this is when I was at Ariba selling yep, contract yep, tools. Yep, yep. And I was calling people every day and it was just terrible. People would hang up on me, you know, hable inglés, that kind of stuff. Just like, yeah. you can imagine is the phone would get heavier and heavier at three o'clock in the afternoon as you had to make those calls. And I was about to quit. And that's when I kind of rediscovered LinkedIn as I was online. You know, I was back then there was lots of these like social network for professionals, but i had always thought of LinkedIn as a resume or a Rolodex, but I never realized it was an amazing sales lead database. Yeah. And so I started sending out hundreds of connection requests a day, literally to anybody who was a lawyer on LinkedIn. And because I was just sending them out to anybody on LinkedIn, I got banned from LinkedIn. I got struck down. You know, they, the, link, <laughs> the LinkedIn police said, you are no longer allowed to be on LinkedIn. It was like, <laughs> Like, I know I had to like beg for my access back, but, but it turned out that a couple of those connections turned into real opportunities yeah. that closed and ended up saving my sales career. Yeah. And so, you know, when LinkedIn called, I thought of LinkedIn as the place where it's going to be a billion dollar opportunity for salespeople. And so I'm pretty excited that the sales solutions business at LinkedIn, which is, I was part of the co-founding team that launched that business, now Sales Navigator. That's gonna be a billion dollar business on its own one day. Amazing. So you took it from 75-ish million to about a billion-ish? No, when I left in 2018, we had $6 billion in annual revenue in the business. And the org grew from 15 to, by the time you left, over 1,300 people. My team was 1,300, but the overall team was 5,000 people. And your team was 1,300. I was kind of like the chief operating officer of our function, yep. right? So I ran sales strategy, training, tools, insights, sales dev. The quota carrying reps report to you too? Only the SDs. What's that? Sales dev. Yep. Yeah, yeah. so only the insights, well, we didn't call them insights. Lead gen. Lead gen reported to me. And one of the best practices, I believe, and this is a tip for your audience listening to sales ops, is all of the senior sales ops people at LinkedIn, including myself, all carried quotas. And were responsible for revenue just like the sales leaders. And by doing that, you align your sales ops function to your sales function. You don't want your sales ops function just sitting there thinking about forecast and data quality and account prioritization and segmentation. You want them thinking about how do I win? How do I make the number? How do I achieve my goals at the end of the day? And so, you know, that's why I always think sales ops is this core business partner to sales. They should be the one helping the company and the sales leader figure out how to make the number. So who was your counterpart holding the bag for the quota carrying reps? Gamson. Gamson was. Yeah. And let's assume Gamson had a 50-50 split variable base. Did you carry the same split? I did. And was the downstream effect of that that your directs also carried that same split? They, it was different. So yeah, I mean, I think- Did you want that by the way? Yeah, I did. You did I, want that. I asked for it, yeah. I knew it was the best practice. I knew it was the right thing to do, so. 
And by the way, I encounter a lot of resistance against that even today. A lot of people are like, well, we don't know if it's the right thing or whatever, but I'm a big fan of driving alignment between the functions. I don't believe that sales ops and strategy should be a audit function on the business. It needs to be an enablement function on the business. There's other functions that can be auditing sales organization. Mm -hmm. Sales ops job should be to reduce friction and help people close business. So I watched you give a great shoot. What's it called? The LinkedIn learning. I watched the whole thing and I thought it was really good. And you defined sales ops into four distinct categories. The first was the COO of the sales team. The second was as a sales strategy partner. And this is territories, comp plans, quotas, that kind of thing. Very tactical stuff. The third is chief of staff. I took this to mean alignment of priorities. And I think the comp plan would be a good way to align priorities. And then the fourth is being a salesperson. I didn't think I'd get there so quickly, but if you had to prioritize those and there was only one that you could be world-class at, which would it be? Probably being the chief operating officer. The most important part of the function is being a strategic partner to the sales team. And not every sales leader has all of the capabilities or bandwidth to be able to handle the internal and the process and the systems and the structural changes that are needed to basically run a team efficiently. They need a partner to basically handle that stuff for them. And so the division of labor where the salesperson is responsible for hitting the number and leading the team and the sales ops person is responsible for everything else, that's the core. You could be a great analyst or a great strategist, or you could be a great communicator and a great process person, but ultimately you need to be both those things, which is sort of the partner who can do whatever is needed for that sales leader and for that functional team in order to make it be successful. When I think about the people who I know in operations who are like the real superstars, all of them are capable of leading teams individually, but they're also comfortable being the number two and helping the company be successful. When I joined Kleiner, one of the easy areas to help with was on the operation side, especially the zero to one, zero to five million, how to get those off the ground, basic things like comp plans, quotas. And I immediately felt overwhelmingly insecure about my operational excellence, if you will. And I realized I know how to recruit and I know how to sell, but I don't know ops. It was very obvious to me because I was trying to do it and I, I couldn't do it like I needed to do it to be the sales ops person on behalf of the startups at Kleiner. So I called my old sales ops guy and I said, Daryl, I will pay you to consult me for 10 hours and I have 10 chapters that I wanna write with you and I wanna go into like deep sales ops stuff because it's so obvious that it's an area of exponential returns that I could add to the portfolio and I couldn't. So anyway, you also mentioned on the four things that you described, what is sales ops? You then went on to, in this LinkedIn learning, to talk about the qualifications of these roles. And I'm notoriously bad at interviewing for sales ops. I can't do it very well. And so this was a good learning for me. And the qualities that you articulated were analytical or analytics, communication, strategic analysis, and collaboration. What are some of your favorite interview questions to get at the heart of any of those qualities? How do I interview a sales ops person? 
Well, you, you would interview a sales ops person like you'd interview any person, right? I have a, a structured thought around how people should interview. I would say that, you know, I have my own philosophy about how I do this, which is a little bit different than other folks. I actually try to reassess everybody prior to interviewing them and then try to validate my assumptions based upon the interview. I don't like to overweight the interview as well. The goal is to hire great people. And then it's not just hiring them, but also developing them. So a lot of people seem to just say, oh, hiring is the end. I mean, it does help. Obviously, you need to have the raw material there, but you have to inspire them and manage them and set them up for success and coach them to be successful too. So like, you know, you talk about why are some salespeople successful and why are some salespeople not successful? There's a lot of reasons that go into it. Hiring is just one of those reasons and we control some aspects of it. We should never think though that the interview process is the end-all be-all of hiring someone. An interview is great. An interview allows you to see the interpersonal skills. It allows you to feel the vibe of the person, which you could never get from paper. It allows you to sort of assess someone as a human in a different way than just looking at their accomplishments. But I still believe that it's just one data point. Backdoor references are probably as or maybe more valuable than an interview itself. And also front door references too, where they give you those things can be incredibly helpful too to validate assumptions and things. So I like to start with assuming something about somebody. And this is pre-work. Pre-work. I will sit down with someone's LinkedIn profile and whatever pre-work I've given them, whether it be some sort of testing work or some sort of, you know, send me a writing sample or whatever it is that I'm looking for to basically understand what they did. I'll take a look at it and that will give me a sense of where they are. And then either I or someone on my team can then test them to assess about how strong they are in this area. We'll take communication as an example, because I think it's hard to see someone's communication skill through a LinkedIn profile or through reading something. And so you might look across their history and you might assume that they're okay or not okay, just an average communicator. And by asking them to tell a story, by asking them a hard question that throws them off balance, by asking them to ask you a question that you think would be compelling, you can assess how strong they are in terms of a communication skill, if that's the type of thing that matters for the job. And that's the kind of thing that you would assess as as excellence. One of the questions I always ask everybody, for example, is, you know, tell me your life story. It's a story. A fail on that job is like, well, my first job was at an advertising agency in New York or something. It's like, that's not a story. (laughs) That's like, tell me what's on your resume. I want to hear a story. Can you entertain me? Can you engage me? Do you know how to talk to the person on the other side and pull them into what your thing is and sort of engage them in that concept? A great salesperson, I would expect, would be able to do that, would be able to tell stories. You can even ask them, tell me a story that's like, you know, really funny from the last whatever that you did this summer, things like that. And so I, I assess based upon those type of things. The other thing that I think I like assess on as I'm going through is behavioral things that are more deeper about how the person actually operates and making sure that they have shared values or shared beliefs or that they're going to work well with me. For example, I'm the kind of person who is, I'm just a really strong believer in hard work. And if someone doesn't exhibit the characteristics of a hard worker, it's harder for me to want to hire them. So they may be very efficient worker and great at what they do, but like, I like to work with people who work really hard. And if they're not hard workers, it's, 
it's harder for me to, to find the right space for them. It doesn't mean I, I haven't worked with some people who are, are very efficient workers and are amazing. But like when I hire, I, I try to hire people who are hard workers. And so I'll ask questions which reveal behaviors without actually saying, are you a hard worker? Like what? What was your first job? What did you like most about it? What did you like least about it? If someone says like, well, my first job was digging ditches and I hated it. It was such hard work, slave all day. I'm like, well, you're probably not going to have the grit needed to necessarily work in this particular thing. People who give up easily on hard work, it's probably not what I want. So the biggest influences in our, in our life are our parents. Our parents drive who we are and who we strive to be and who we strive not to be. And so one interview question I ask all the time is, what's one thing that you really admire about your parents? And what's one thing that you don't admire about your parents? And what I'm trying to get to it is that is those are the behaviors and characteristics that an individual wants to exhibit and not exhibit in themselves because their parents are oftentimes, you know, they believe that they're a reflection of their parents. What a great question. Thanks. I've heard you ask another interview question that I want to know if there is a right answer and what it is. Rank these four things, career, money, company, manager, in order of priority. Is there a right and wrong answer? So first of all, that is a Mike Amson question. Yeah. So I just did disclosure like that, but I do ask that question a lot. There's no right answer or wrong answer because obviously everyone has a preference. It's a value-based question. It's kind of a value-based question. I use it for a couple things. So I usually use that as a closing question. And I use it because I want the person to reveal to me what motivates them so that I can use that as my data source to focus on how I want to pitch them on coming to work at this company. That makes sense. So if someone says, hey, I care about career or I care about manager or I care about money, I think money's the most controversial one on that list because you want people who care about, everyone cares about money. I mean, money matters, but to say that you only care about money is like a, can turn off some people. People conflate it as a mercenary attitude. Exactly. And I don't know if it necessarily is, but assuming that you don't believe that the person is a mercenary, but that they care deeply about money because it really matters in their life or matters to them, or they've been brought up in a, in a world where that sort of is the right answer in that question, which many salespeople have been, then the, the answer to me is, is like, how do I pitch them on how much money they can make if they are successful in this particular role? That makes sense. I was asking myself that question. Yeah. What's your answer? My initial instinct was career, but career is a function of the company. And so I started working backwards from, if I don't have a company that is growing, then I won't have the upward mobility to be able to capitalize on accelerating my career. And so the ultimate question for me was learning. And then I started to back into like, well, how much is my manager going to be important at a rising company in order to enable my career to underpin what's most valuable to me, which is learning. And I think money, then it becomes the downstream effect of compounded learning over time. And so my answer would be like, how do I learn? And I would work backwards to figure out, well, of the career company and manager, I have to have a company that's high growth. Then I have to have a manager that sees potential in me and believes in upward mobility of their team. 
so that I can go do what I want to do in my career, which hopefully will then make me some money. Yeah. I think that answer, which is manager, company, career, money, is probably the most common one I hear. And it's probably the most thought out answer for most people. And it's also one of the things that I found over the years is that, because I do ask that question a lot, if you've never had a great manager, and many people haven't, you're very unlikely to put manager first because you don't know what it's like. You don't know what it's like when you have someone who believes in you and someone who invests in you and someone who tries and has your back and is always pushing you forward. And when you've had someone like that in your life, who is not just your manager, but a friend and a mentor and an advocate and a sponsor as well, then you realize how important a manager ultimately is to all of those things mm -hmm. being successful. And taking this thought exercise a step further, generally speaking, like if you really believe in the leader or the manager that you work for and you go work for them again somewhere, you kind of trust their decision-making and their access. And so I guess if you put manager first, you're kind of saying that that's company too, in some ways, because oftentimes what's the expression? Like you follow or quit a leader, not a company. I think it's true. And I personally aspire to be that person, right? I want to be able to have people who want to come work with me because they've had great experiences working with me in the past and they want to try it again. This story is incredible, like the LinkedIn stuff. And I, and I promise I'll get to Cameo. And selfishly speaking, you're a portfolio company. Ilya would scream at me if I didn't. Um, <laughs> but on the LinkedIn thing, you hear the 75 million to whatever billion story. What was the lowest point of that ride for you? Is there anything that immediately stands out? Yeah, I mean, two things stand out. The first was people forget 2008 maybe, but you know, if I can actually put you back in the time capsule, I left this super cushy, high paying job where I was an executive at Ariba. And I went down and took a director level job from a VP at an aspiring tech company, which was in the hiring space. And then in 2008, the entire world crashed if you can remember, it wasn't exactly the best year to be hiring people. And so I was like, oh my God, it's going to be the end. We missed our number. The first quarter I started, we fired 10% of the employees in the company. The CEO who was a good close personal friend of Mike was let go. This is all started within three months of me starting. I was literally thinking, man, should I go beg for my job back? Mm -hmm. So that was definitely like the panic point. Mm -hmm. I was there. But from that point on, we continued to sort of build and grow over a period of time and the business took care of itself. It was an amazing, amazing product and incredible product market fit that allowed us to be the stewards of that opportunity. And then on a personal level, there was a point where midway through my career, I thought I was doing everything I could do to be the best leader and manager I could be, but my team wasn't getting what they needed from me. And I wasn't really aware of what was happening. And I had a 360 degree feedback session where like people gave me feedback and it was pretty painful and crushing. As someone who I thought I was doing all the great things to help people be successful, it turned out I wasn't, at least not in their mind. And so that was a big moment of, wow, do I go cry in a corner and quit and just leave? Or do I double down try to dig my way out of this and figure out how I can be a better leader to my team and inspire them more. And uh, I opted for the latter. I opted to keep going and glad I did because I think that I formed real relationships with people during that period of time that even today I think are so important. 
I made myself vulnerable and I exposed myself to critical feedback and I tried to do the best I could to learn from it and get better. Going back to learning. So as you learn about yourself in that process, what were you doing to expose yourself to critical feedback? Did you go to your team and say, hey, I heard I suck and I took that to heart. Tell me what I suck at. Yeah, yeah, no, that's exactly what I said. I said, first of all, thank you for giving me feedback because I know that if you didn't care about me, you wouldn't. <laughs> you would just say nothing. So if you actually want to help someone, you tell people where they think they can get better. You give them constructive feedback about like, I don't think he's doing well here. I don't think he's doing well here. And so I said, here was the feedback that came back. I didn't do this well. I didn't do this well. Didn't this, do this well. And here's the things that I'm going to do going forward to try to fix those things. And I need your help. I need your help to be able to become aware of when I'm failing in this area. And I need your help to push me in the right way. And I need your help to give me another chance to be able to be the leader that you deserve and that I want to be. That's amazing. When you give that feedback to people now, do you share that story when you give that feedback? Sometimes I have before. I mean, I'm not ashamed of saying it. You mentioned a lot of the advisory work I've done. You, one of the things you and I shared, Jubin, is we both love learning, clearly. And I went to work for Ray at Principles. Ray Dalio. Yeah, because literally the only reason I really went there was because it was such an honor and a privilege to be able to learn from Ray and to be able to understand better about how he lead people and how he manage people and stuff like that. And that experience for me was incredibly painful. <laughs> I mean, talk about a place where people do not curb their feedback for you in any way at all. But even though it felt like I was getting pounded on a daily basis, I feel like I learned so much about myself and was willing to basically be a vulnerable person and to be able to accept that feedback and try to grow from it. But you were an advisor there, right? I was an advisor, but I was also a consultant too. And they were giving you feedback yeah. on the quality of your consulting? On my personality, yeah. And just for the audience, Ray Dalio is Bridgewater, is that, is that That's right? Wrong? And it's built on radical candor. Ray is the founder and former CEO, current co-chief investment officer of Bridgewater, yeah. which is the world's largest hedge fund, yeah. most successful hedge fund. Last I checked, they had somewhere around $180 billion under management. As Ray would say, like you could put all the VCs together and they still wouldn't be as big as Bridgewater. Yeah. Yeah. And also he's an amazing thought leader and visionary. He wrote a book called Principles, which is, it's a whole structured way of thinking and leading that he lives his life by. He's an incredibly structured, principled thinker about how he does these things. And, and I read the book and millions of other people have read the book. It's this very thoughtful articulate way of approaching life and leading your life to try to achieve what you want to achieve. And, and I had the opportunity to go work for him for six months as a consultant, basically helping him launch Principles, the startup, which is now its own independent company and doing great. In fact, they just have a Zoom app now out recently huh. to integrate the Principles tool collecting process cool. along with Zoom. But it was a very difficult, painful process, you know, and I learned a lot during that period process about myself, about Ray, about principles, about the business. And one of the core principles that Ray has is incredible transparency yes. in the way that they communicate at Bridgewater. Is that right? They believe in radical truth and radical transparency. And so they are not shy about telling you stuff. Like they do not believe in like, you need to dumb down your sentences. If they think you're an idiot, just say you're an idiot. What's an example of something that would never have been said to you at LinkedIn 
that when you got there, you were like, did you just say that? How far was the knob cranked? And I'm not saying air the laundry or whatever, but does the question make sense? I don't know if anyone said anything to me that was so offensive. I have a pretty thick sense skin, but I'll, I will tell you something that I was like blown away by. So the first thing I'll say is there was this thing where they would record all the meetings and make all the meetings public to every, all the employees. And I'm talking about like the management leadership meetings. I was on the leadership team there, right? And I worked with the rest of the leadership structure team. And we would record all of our disputes and we would have like hot disputes about what we should be doing and our go to market and why are we wasting money and this kind of stuff like that. And then that meeting without any editing for the most part would be just packaged up and shift off to all the employees who could watch it via video, what we did. And in the beginning, I was terrified of this. I was like, oh my God, it's like, this is going to be lawsuits and insurrection and all kinds of stuff. And you know what happened? Nothing. Turned out that a lot of what we believe of fear is based upon the belief that people can't handle it. And the truth is they can. You can be a lot more transparent with people than people think. And you know, when I got to Cameo, one of the first things that I did with my staff meeting was I recorded it and distributed it to all the people in the company because of what I had learned at this company. So now there's things that they do that I don't think I'm that comfortable with doing. For example, your performance reviews were all public too. <laughs> I know you're laughing about it, but it's true. I remember seeing like an email, someone did their performance reviews. There was an email sent out saying, hey, the performance review's out. Can you send them to everybody so we can all see everyone's performance reviews? And before I could say like, that seems like something that's a little too personal to share, boom, they were out there. (laughs) Everyone had everyone's performance reviews because people want to just not hide things. They want to just get stuff out there and deal with the reality of what it is. If your manager doesn't think you're a good performer, then it's okay for other people to know it. And knowing that that is the culture that exists, the idea might be, well, that raises your game because people don't want their ego to be bruised like that publicly. So maybe that is some motivation. Like, you know, if I can't hold myself accountable, then certainly my peer's judgment might. To be successful at principles at Bridgewater, you need to have a certain mentality about willingness to be transparent and willingness to put yourself out there. It's amazing. All right. So you mentioned Cameo. Let's jump into it. Cameo is most recently valued at over a billion dollars. Kleiner's, I think we were series B or something like that. And Ilya's on the board. It's, it's, it's an amazing company. It's raised over 164 million. Spark, Bain, Lightspeed, GV, us individual investors like Tony Hawk and some other pretty awesome people. What is Cameo in 30 seconds? Cameo is the world's largest marketplace of celebrities. And it's a place where fans can connect with those celebrities to be able to get all kinds of personal interactions, whether it be video shout outs, like happy birthday mom from Snoop Dogg, whether it be fan clubs, whether it be real life virtual meet and greets or whether it be products for businesses, all of those things are available through Cameo. We are democratizing the access to celebrities globally. I didn't know about Cameo until I joined Kleiner and we had a holiday party and Devin was there, Townsend. And Devin's a a co-founder and him and I immediately hit it off. And he was like a Vine star before Cameo. He's an incredible story. And that was on a Thursday, Friday. And we spent an hour or so together. And I didn't know 
anybody. At Kleiner, I didn't know anybody. And so he said, hey, next week, I know this is soon, but we're throwing our holiday party, cameos, in Chicago. Can you come? And I was like, yeah, book my flight right now. Are you kidding me? Of course. So I go out to Chicago and I meet Arthur, who runs the B2B part of the business. I meet everybody. I meet all the executives. And right then and there, I was like, there's something in the water at this company. It was palpable. And maybe the energy was palpable because it, there is an allure for a younger generation of people to want to be involved in Cameo. Not the product, but the business. It's just a cool company. And so that was my first experience with Cameo. What was your first experience like? You mentioned earlier about learning and you like to jump in the water. How did you learn about the opportunity? Steven, the CEO, worked at LinkedIn. I knew about Cameo from that. Yeah. And I'll be honest, like when, the first time I heard about it, I'm like, there's no way this will work. You know, it's like, <laughs> how is this ever going to work? So, but the truth is, is that the core Cameo product, which is the video message, that's yep. the video shout out, incredible product market fit, incredible. If you've ever got one for someone as a gift or received one, because most of them are gifts, I'd say 85% of all the video message products are gifts. It's either amazing or great. It's almost never this sucks. Yep. Because it's such an unusual, special experience to be able to get a message from somebody that you know or admire or even just aware of, yep. right? Just sort of like having that thing, it just brings a smile to people's face. NPS on this product is in the 70s, which is super high for yep. most consumer products at this scale, both on the consumer side, the fan side, as well as on the talent side. So that the celebrities love it too. People who do it love it. The celebrities love to do the shout outs and the fans and their, their recipients love to receive them. And so it, the core of the product is this incredible product market fit that drives our overall marketplace and has driven our growth and has allowed other celebrities to come in because they see what's happening. They realize they do these things all the time for free and they see how fun it is and they want to join because they actually like the ones who do the best at Cameo, the ones who stick, the ones who make the most money are the ones who love doing it. It's great. They don't mind doing their Cameo messages because it's just a, it's a cool thing to do. Yeah, that NPS is like Instagram type NPS. Yeah, Instagram five years ago. Yeah, it's incredible. Speaking of growth, there's some eye-popping numbers. None of this is anything that is not public. Cameo's made over, I think, 100 million in GMV for the year of 2020. And it takes a well-known cut, a VIG of each transaction, a majority of which goes to the talent, Yep, which is kind of refreshing in the Apple world of, yeah, of yeah, take rates. Don't get me started. <laughs> um, 2020 was, to put it lightly, a pretty big year for the company. There was 1.3 million cameos that were requested and delivered. And the company's grown four and a half plus X. It's serving over a million customers across 30,000 talent in the marketplace, creators. Going back to like when I met Steven and Arthur and Devin and I started learning about them and I watched them interact, they all went to Duke together. They're good friends. And as I was thinking about this podcast, I was thinking about you coming into that. And there's a story that has been told a lot about COOs at tech companies in Silicon Valley when these things just catch fire, especially when it's like, you and your friends made a company and oh my God, we just found product market fit with 78 NPS. And it is growing so fast. 
but you're coming into a very sacred place with people that are very close. How did you approach that environment? What were the key things that you wanted to understand to make sure that you were a fit? And what were some of the things that were exciting about that, but also nerve wracking? So I've tried to approach it with humility for the most part. I mean, listen, these are three people. Don't forget Martin too, is yeah. the third co-founder who basically built this company, right? So, you know, we stand on the shoulders of people who basically put their blood, sweat, and tears to make this great company. And now it's my responsibility to try to continue to drive it to the next level. A lot of what got us there is not gonna get us there, mm. right? Because the organic growth of the pandemic and the normal growth of the business is not gonna accelerate you into that sort of next stratosphere. And it takes a lot of engineering work, data and analytics work, process, sales, you know, all the things that need to be able to build out in order to scale that. And so I've been great to learn from the people who helped get me there and get us there as a business. But I also wanna bring in new ideas and thinking about things differently and trying new things and, and building up best practices that I've learned over the years about how to scale the business. And that's really what I've been doing since I've been there. When I assessed the business and knew it, I, there was a lot of things that I knew, but one of the things that made me feel more comfortable was that Steven, the CEO, his formative professional experience was at LinkedIn. And so he understood the culture and a huge percentage of our employees actually came from LinkedIn as well. And so I think because I'm so comfortable in that culture and the way that we treat each other in that world, I think Cameo is very similar in terms of the way people treat each other, which with respect, and even though they expect results and we demand results, it's not just you know a party, there's no assholes in the business. People are cool. And then the last piece of it was this learning for me. And for me, one of the reasons I took the job was because of the learning, right? And I'm like, the core of business is consumer and I'm a B2B guy and our business is entertainment. When I started, I didn't know the difference between an agent and a manager. And a lot of people probably don't today on this call. It's like, the world of entertainment is huge and different and established and relationship-based. And I am a newbie trying to figure this world out. And so it's been amazing to learn all these new things, difficult and hard to scale into the world of entertainment, but cool and fun at the same time as well. And that's what I'm looking for. Great people, high growth product with lots of potential, which Cameo is. I mean, and I can get into that in a second, but interesting and fun. What's more fun than being able to work in the world of sports? and music, and TV, and movies, yeah. and everything else that we have on the site. So it's really, really cool. The office guy, Brian Baumgartner, is that yeah. right? Yeah. He made a million dollars on Cameo in 2020. Yeah. There's over 150 content creators that make over 100K a year on Cameo. And if you, I think, broke that down hourly, I suspect their hourly rate is quite good. I wanna use that as a teeing off point from a quote from Bill Gurley, who is a well-reputed investor from Benchmark, who's the godfather in some ways of marketplace businesses. And what he says is that a lesson I learned many times in my 20 years as a marketplace investor is that aggregating demand is the one and only key. Aggregating supply is not the hard part. And having differentiated supply or thinking because you own supply, you can enter the market is misplaced thinking. LinkedIn is a marketplace business to some degree. Like it, it depends on how you look at it. Everything is, a, you know, yeah. the supermarket is a marketplace, That's right? That's right. <laughs> Do you agree with that quote? 
And how do you use that framework in your day-to-day on supply and demand? I do, yeah. I would say that most businesses are demand constrained. So when you find product market fit, and as I said before, product market fit is what drives our marketplace. It's because people buy cameos because they're freaking amazing. And they're willing to go through the friction of creating one. And it's not easy to make a cameo. And it's like, it should be easy, but it's, it's not that easy, right? It's like, you're going to buy one for your mom. What are you going to have the celebrity say? Which celebrity are you going to pick? All the sort of complexities that come into the friction, those things are bypassed because of the product market fit. And so we've been able to find it because there's this innate demand, which is relatively elastic with respect to fans and gifters in essence. And there is a large enough but finite supply of celebrities who are willing to do these cameos. Mm-hmm. But as the marketplace is created and we have the world's largest celebrity marketplace, I mean, you, you go anywhere anywhere else, there is nothing else that's even comparable to where Cameo is today in terms of overall engagement and platform on the thing. But it still plateaus. And it's plateauing because, well, one is that, you know, the overall conversion and friction has to be easier. Two is the supply has to be more consistent and greater and broader. But most importantly is the demand side. Most of our talent has plenty of inventory to sell. They need to find the demand to buy that inventory, which is why one of the things I'm most excited about in our business is our B2B business. Mm -hmm. You know, right now it's all consumers. It's like you buying something for your mom. But just last year, we launched for the first time, instead of just buying a cameo for your mom, why not buy a cameo for your business? And just to sort of go through the marketplace dynamics there, we have thousands and thousands of celebrities on Cameo. And those celebrities, they have millions and millions of hours every single day that they can sell as inventory. We have unused inventory sitting on the books. And then the other side of the marketplace We all know that there are tens of millions of businesses around the world that struggle to find video content for their social feed. These are businesses that would love to have a celebrity endorsement at some point, but don't know how to do it and don't believe they could ever afford it. And if they only knew that on Cameo and listeners today, go to Cameo, open up Brett Favre's page, you can hire Brett Favre to do a mini commercial for your business right now for, I think it's like 8,000 bucks. That's nothing. The cost of what it would cost to go through to get him to do a mini commercial for something else is a lot more than that. But they're willing to do it because the cameo experience is so easy for them and it's quick and simple. And you as the advertiser, as the brand owner, as the marketer can basically get access to this content to put into your social feed to basically great awareness and great bookings and revenue for your business. And so there's this opportunity for us to grow demand by a thousand X and also AOV, which is our price value by hundred X by allowing the businesses into the marketplace as well. So I was having lunch with Arthur, who's the first hire, I think at Cameo and doing a bunch of the B2B stuff. And I had an oh shit moment of in five years, the B2B business might actually be bigger than the B2C business. And maybe I'm wrong, but- We'll see. I mean, it's the fastest growing part of our business by far. It is incredibly fast growing. And a cool use case that came up out of that, and the large software company shall not be named, but 
they are buying thousands of cameos for new hires to welcome them to the company. So like Snoop Dogg's like, yo, what up? Welcome to our sales, <laughs> welcome to our company. And those aren't even the ones I'm, I'm talking about like mini commercials. It's just a no brainer. It's so hard for marketers to get video content. It's like, where do you get it? How would you, you gonna do a mini commercial? Good luck. And where would that commercial live? The asset comes as an MP4, right? And basically you upload it up into your social feed. There's licensing restrictions in terms of like how often you can use it, yeah. and what platforms, but that's something you could buy more of if you need it. And culturally, what has to change? When you go from a B2C business to a B2B, I'm not saying we're fully transitioning the whole business here, but as you build another arm of the business, when you prioritize the muscle that the organization has to build, what are the things that are at the top of that list to go build that B2B motion? You have to have the go-to-market infrastructure fully complete. You know, you need product, you need sales ops, you need product marketing, and you need your sales organization there. The back office can support lots of different things going through, but we've been putting in place all of the different functions to be able to enable that business to grow and to scale. And it's almost like running its own little side business inside of the company right now. And I'm very familiar with that model because in essence, that's very much the LinkedIn story as well. The recent growth of LinkedIn is not just driven by the recruiting business. The most significant impact is actually the advertising business, which was a completely separate unit that was running on its own team and had its own organization that had its own strategy. And that business has been just blowing up over the last three years. That's a great place for us to leave it. I'm already 22 minutes over what I promised. So two questions that I always wrap with. The first, what does grit mean to you when you think about that word? First thing I thought was sandpaper, but I, I know that's probably not the, the, the right thing. I'll be more. So uh, I, I've done a lot of construction in my life, so I'm, I'm very used to different grit levels of sandpaper. But as it relates to go-to-market, as it relates to sales, is the epitome of that perseverance, of that hard will to succeed, of the thing inside you which you can never define and is hard to see and measure. And in my mind, really is this concept of have people shown it over their careers? Mm. Do they have that motivation to go through? And oftentimes I ask questions in my interviews, like what motivates you? And that reveals whether people have grit. That reveals whether or not people care about what they do and are willing to push themselves through the hard time and to be, in order to be successful. So it's this incredibly important part of being a successful person in life is the willingness to overcome and persevere obstacles in your way. Cameo's hiring everywhere. Are there any key roles on your team that you wanna shout out? And if not, or if so, awesome. And what's the best way to reach out to you? If you hear this, you love it, reach out to Cameo. How do you come work there? You can feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn. Somebody did a really clever thing, which was they, I'm on Cameo as a talent. Yeah. So you can actually book me as talent. How much are you? Two bucks. <laughs> and, cheap date. And, and the salesperson actually booked me to, in order to get like a cold call kind of thing, which yeah. I thought was brilliant. Yeah. You're so screwed. You're about to get so many $2 bookings. I'll be increasing my price if I get a bunch of them. <laughs> so you, we'll see. But the point is, is that I think that would be a very clever way of getting me okay. if you want to. And all my proceeds go to charity, just to be clear. And any key hires? AEs, B2B AEs, what are you looking for? Boy, we're, we're hiring everywhere. I mean, tons of B2B, 
I just opened up a role for a new director of marketing operations. So I'm hiring that myself. So if there's any great marketing ops people who want to work in an incredibly cool, fun, high growth company with a great culture, hit me up, LinkedIn or Cameo. Brian, first podcast episode recording in person did not disappoint. Thank you. Thanks, man. It's awesome to be here. That's it. Thanks for listening. If you're just discovering the podcast, we have a lot more episodes with CROs from organizations like Snowflake, Twilio, Slack, LinkedIn, Box, etc. If you want to keep up or support the show, the best way to do so is by following us on Spotify, subscribing on Apple, and leaving a review. Thanks. Talk soon.